Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. We dive into the weird world of quantum computing and we find out about the research by Professor Michelle Simmons. The Australian of the Year for 2017 and how that all ties into the world of complicated quantum computing. In the last week, we've awarded the prizes for Australian of the Year, and some of the fantastic news out of it is that three out of the four major prize recipients were scientists. The maths teacher, Eddie Wu, was named Australian Local Hero of the Year. Graham Farquhar, as an esteemed scientist, was named Senior Australian of the Year. And of course, the top prize, Australian of the Year for 2017, was named as Professor Michelle Simmons, who is one of the professors at UNSW and leads the Centre of Excellence for Quantum Computation and Communication Technology. And she's one of the most well-recognised and highest achieving scientists, particularly in the area of quantum computing across the world. She's won heaps of medals and accolades in Australia before. The ARC, the Australian Research Council's most prestigious awards, named as a fellow of the Australian Academy of Sciences, won both the Palsy and the Lyle medals from the Australian Academy of Sciences. She was named Scientist of the Year by the New South Wales Government in 2012 and 2014. Uh, she's won prizes from the ATSI, the Australian Technology Science and Engineering Group, the SARA's Eureka Prize for Leadership in Science, and even most recently, in 2016, the Foresight Institute Feynman Prize in Nanotechnology. Now, with a resume like that, it's very surprising that she was named Australian of the Year, a title that's often gone to humanitarians, educators, sports people, and to show that Australia is now turning a corner and recognising the achievements of great scientists who've been working for years under the radar. And so let's take a step back and look at just exactly what Professor Michelle Simmons has achieved. And to do that, we first need to spend a little bit of time talking about her biography. And then we're going to get into just exactly what makes quantum computing work and why it's so special. So strap yourselves in. We're about to dive deep into the world of quantum computing, where everything is everything simultaneously. And we're going to start our journey all the way over in England. Now, Michelle Simmons was born in London and came from a, a very middle-class upbringing. Their father was a policeman and the mother worked in the banking industry. And Michelle went to a pretty rough high school. It was the South East London Comprehensive School, or what we would call in Australia, public school, where out of the two to 300 students in her year level, only 16 of them finished the equivalent of VCHSC in Australia, the final Year 12 subjects, which they call A-levels in the UK. And out of those 16 who even attempted it, only two of them passed. So this is a school that makes you know, learning and studying sciences quite difficult. But from there, she went on and studied at Durham University in the north of England. And then she went on to work on and design and building of electrical devices, particularly for solar cells capturing the sun's energy. From there, she went to Cambridge University, one of the most prestigious universities in the world. And there, she really studied the quantum field, looking at the weird physics of quantum entanglement and how it works on the size of individual atoms. Now, in Cambridge, she worked in the semiconductor group, where she learned how to design, fabricate, and measure her own semiconductors and do that fundamental circuit design on the atomic scale. All that groundbreaking work in the 80s and 90s, such as scanning electron microscopes and electron tunneling that developed by people like IBM, really enabled us to see down to that atomic level. 
that really pushed along research. But for Michelle, that, that was that was great. But, you know, she wanted to study more. She wanted to get into how these things worked on a quantum level, which is where all the exciting, crazy physics happened. And, well, Cambridge just wasn't the place for that. Yes, they were really good at the theoretical part, but they weren't that great at the practical application, which left her with not much choice. Could you go to the United States and join the esteemed research groups at Stanford and other places, which pioneered the original development of silicon conductors, which is why we have Silicon Valley today? But you looked at that, where researchers who often aren't credited have to work at the behest of large funding commercial companies or heads of labs, and she saw an offer from Australian Research University. And so then she bought a one-way ticket to Australia in 1998, something that actually her brother had often joked about with her when she was playing up as a young child. He'd said that, well, if you're not careful, I'll, I'll buy you a one-way ticket to Australia. But she did that of her own volition. Uh, uh, by the way, she framed that ticket, that one-way ticket she bought, and sent it to her brother for his 50th birthday as a bit of a joke. But the reason why she chose Australia is that the Australian culture offered something a lot more freedom, independence, and exploration. It wasn't stuffy and theoretical like the UK, and it wasn't beholden to large corporate environments and intensely competitive like the US. And so that is why she moved to Australia. And ever since then, she has gained quite a very strong reputation in expanding with some innovative concepts and ideas that really put her as the number one expert in our field, in Australia at least, especially almost globally, in quantum computing. And in 2010, she was basically elected as the head of the Quantum Computing Research Consortium, which is spans over 180 researchers from all different universities across Australia. As well as her role as a professor at UNSW, she really also heads this global research group that is centred and mostly focused in Australia uh, of collaborations from researchers from different universities and faculties. And they chose her because not only is she a great researcher with good ideas, but she's an expert at leading scientists, especially to achieve some great things. And under her guidance, that team has achieved some pretty spectacular stuff. Now, I can't explain it to you well without going into what the details of quantum computing are, but suffice to say, her team has chosen an approach that is different from the rest of the world, really establishing Australia have its own specific niche in the development and research in quantum computing. And not only have they chosen their own niche, but they're very, very good at it. Michelle Simmons' research has been fantastic, and her own personal story is quite compelling. From humble app upbringings in the UK, all the way out to the other side of the world in Australia. She's not only established for herself a great career path, but she's brought up others with her and done some tremendous things to put Australia on the global map in one of the forefront new areas of development that will last us for many years to come. So that's why she was awarded Australian of the Year, not only for her intelligence and genius, but also her leadership and pushing of a team and agenda that makes Australia punch well above its weight on a global stage. So let's first talk about quantum computing and to really explain why quantum computing is so incredible and potentially going to change the way all computing works across the world. We need to take a step even further back and explain two key concepts. The first is traditional computing. 
and traditional computing works in a pretty simple way. You can imagine it like having a whole bunch of switches and light bulbs. Light bulb can either be on or it can be off. And with that, we can code information. I can say, you're listening to this radio station or podcast, and I can have that be represented by a light bulb being on. And if the light bulb is off, you know that you're not listening to it. And we can build all kinds of complicated circuits which pile up all this information. With three light bulbs, I can actually represent eight different combinations. And those eight different combinations could represent eight different types of information. Maybe that's eight different radio stations or podcasts that you're listening to. And that's how this all works. We can build up all these different combinations of things and we can save and store that information. If I have a hard drive, I can store the value. I can magnetically flip a bit or save on a solid state drive whether or not that radio station was on or off. And I can save the state of that light bulb so when I power the whole thing down and come back to it later, I remember what those light bulbs were in before. And this is the principle, this binary nature, on or off, switching between these twos and storing this information is how traditional computing works. And the problem with all of this is that when you want to scale it up to tackle really, really big problems, you need a lot of information and you need a lot of bits. You need a lot of those light bulbs all lined up in a row. And that's really great. And we've managed to scale those down using silicon transistors and really get to a really, really low level. But there is eventually going to be a limit where you can't go any lower. And that means you have to make more and more efficient computers that can do lots of calculations with less. And you need to try and pack more and more of these individual light bulbs or switches or bits into even smaller and smaller chips. And eventually we're going to hit a limit on all of those things. We're not there yet and we've got a fair while to go. But that's basically the crux of the problem. If you wanted to solve the world's most complicated problem, that would take thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years to compute and billions and billions and billions of those light bulbs or bits, then it's going to take an awful big computer, an awful lot of energy and an awful long time. And for some kinds of problems, optimizing things, things we call, the fancy word for it is NP-hard problems, like the traveling salesman, but basically root optimization or searching a really big database for that one value. So imagine if I had a big, big table with thousands and thousands and thousands of rows and thousands and thousands and thousands of columns. If I wanted to find the lowest value in that table, I need to search all of those individual things and it's all the way across and then all the way down and do that again and again and again and again and again and that type of problem is incredibly time consuming and also often incredibly important because that kind of search and optimization problem is essential for lots of things from route planning to choosing the best part for your space mission to doing all kinds of detailed modeling and analysis to predict our climate to design new medicines and all other kinds of things. So if we want to tackle these really big problems, we can either build massive supercomputers and wait a long time, which is what we're doing now. And then you have to fight over your access time for that supercomputer. So sometimes we just don't even attempt problems because we know it would take 10,000 years. So we can't really ask that problem for the computer. So we have to sort of approximate and do it other ways. Well, quantum computing on some particular types of problems would enable us to do a lot of those really hard things that I was describing much, much faster. Orders of magnitude faster. Which would mean that we could solve some of those really groundbreaking problems really quickly. And efficiently. Because it doesn't have the same kind of scaling problem that normal traditional computing does. 
So all of a sudden, a lot of those limits around how computers would work would disappear and we could solve some particular types of problems a lot more efficiently. Now this sounds great and incredibly awesome. Sometimes also a little bit scary because things like encryption, particularly public key encryption requires on factoring primes. And factoring primes is one of those problems that can be solved really efficiently using quantum computing. So maybe encryption isn't as good as it needs to be because it could be easily cracked by a quantum computer. But that, that aside, there are some advantages and disadvantages to quantum computing. It also isn't a be all and end all because not all problems can be made more efficient by a quantum computer. Quantum computing is really, really good at some kinds of problems, like finding a local minima, searching through that big massive table. But other types of problems, it basically performs almost exactly the same as a regular computer. So there's no net advantage. So we need to make sure we take all these doom and gloom or hype and joyous press releases about quantum computing with a grain of salt, because there are a lot that they can and can't do. It's like choosing the right tool for a job. So that's why quantum computing is useful and why quantum computing is exciting. But how does it exactly work? So in the quantum computing world, we are in the space of single atoms, and that's where normal physics starts to break down, and we enter the strange and terrifying world of quantum mechanics. In quantum mechanics, we can have things such as spooky action at a distance, as Einstein put it, or things being in a probabilistic state. You may have heard of Schrodinger's cat, which is a cat that is inside his box. It's a thought experiment. No cats are actually harmed here. Um, but basically, the premise is that there's a little decaying thing um, that releases a poison, but they could either not release the poison or could release the poison. And the cat is sealed in this box, and you have no way of knowing. And basically, that cat exists in both states, alive and dead, simultaneously, until you open that box to observe it. It's absurd on a physical sense, but on a, on a single atom sense, an atomic sense, a quantum sense, these things actually do happen. And by that, I mean that this we can have atoms, which basic or electrons specifically, is what we normally talk about, which exist in all possible states simultaneously. And this probabilistic field, and quantum mechanics really help revolution our understanding of the universe, particularly the way fundamental matter works on a very small scale, and it can have really large scale implications. But this kind of quantum weirdness is at the heart of quantum computing, because it relies on that important property superposition and that quantum probability and it turns all of that weird fancy stuff and applies it to bits so coming back to our lamp that we talked about before that was recording whether or not you were or were not listening to a podcast now that lamp could either be on or off it had to be one of those two that's how binary systems works but with a qubit which is what they call a quantum bit it actually encodes both sets of information on and off simultaneously and that lamp exists in both states simultaneously another way to think about it is a, a ball a sphere a globe now, there's a north pole and a south pole two bits of information um, now well, two pieces of information on one bit now a qubit is not only those two north pole and south pole but every other possible point on the sphere 
That's another way to try and think about it. And these rely on these concepts called qubits, which are these multiple piece encoded information, which rely on the fact that it could be any of those states. And when you start linking up qubits in a chain, instead of having your three bits of information giving you eight possible values, your three qubits can give you a lot more possible values and you can link them and basically have all possible values be searched in that field rather than just one option at a time. And so that kind of parallelizing the processes is what makes quantum computing really powerful. So what, how we do this is there's a really cool and terrifying thing we can do with quantum, with quantum properties of electrons. And that is we can entangle them. We can entangle these two atoms, smoosh them together in a special way and encode information in them. We generally encode information with magnet, the spin of electrons, whether they spin up or they spin downwards. And we say we let that represent one and zero instead of the lamp being on or off. And we, we smoosh two atoms together and we separate them. Uh, and that We call that separating and smooshing together process entanglement. Because now when we observe one of those things, we then know what the other one, the pair, the entangled pair, does. So if one of those one was spinning up, we know that the other one spins down. And from that, we can infer information over a distance. And that's kind of cool. Now, all that fancy information goes to show a complicated property of quantum entanglement and quantum computing in general. And if you want to think about it another way, imagine a maze. And if you have a maze and you pour some water into it, it will flow to all possible exits of the maze until it gets to the end. And then basically imagine a goop. So instead of just following one path, it follows all possible paths, spreads out over the whole maze. And then once it gets to the end and can escape and leak out onto the ground, well, all the rest of it just follows and falls down onto the ground too. It sort of undoes itself from the defunct paths and all goes out to that correct path. Whereas a traditional method would basically involve having you to physically go walk through that maze and search every possible route until you get to the end. And that's the difference between quantum computing. It can explore all those possible ends in the maze until it gets to the real one. And when it gets out of the real one, you know you've got the answer. The problem is quantum mechanics is very fiddly. And if anything destabilizes or accidentally looks at the test before it's complete, before it runs, finishes getting through that maze, you might destabilize it and stop it from being in all those possible states just down to being in one state. You open the box to look at the cat inside, so to speak. And that's really the problem. We call that problem coherence. If you look inside and find out what state the thing is in, then you could destabilize the whole thing and ruin all that kind of parallel processing, exploring that you've done there, the real power of quantum computing. And basically, the coherence is a real problem. And it can not just be from you trying to observe it. It can be from random fluctuations, heating up, cooling down, random interactions with the small impurity in the silicon that you've put this circuit into. And all those things can lead to a loss of coherence, which will ruin your whole experiment and make it just like a normal computer. Now, different people and different research groups across the world have different approaches to doing this. NASA is working with Google to build uh, a pretty interesting uh, quantum computer, which they reckon has lots of parallel qubits working pretty well. IBM's got one that they claims around 50 qubits linked together. 
D-Wave, which is a Canadian startup company, reckons they have a thousand, but it only works in a certain type of problem, which is the quantum annealing type problems, not all cases. Other groups basically use light trapped in small circuits to do this whole problem. Some have what they call quantum dots, which are these small little points on a circuit where they modify existing normal silicon transistors to become fancy quantum ones. And all of these are different approaches to the same thing. They're just trying to basically remove errors and keep things coherent and stable so it can finish the simulation without crashing, basically. And that is really, really difficult with quantum computing. And the more qubits you add, the harder that becomes. Because the more chances of error you've got. So that's really what's holding back quantum computing. But it's hoped that we can solve that and get to the end and actually have some good solutions for this problem. But that's what the rest of the world is doing and how quantum computing works. But Australia has been doing something special under the leadership of Professor Michelle Simmons. So Australia is focused on silicon qubits, and that's really been our difference, our point of difference to the rest of the world. And there are a lot of advantages and reasons why we want to do that. The first is that we can make them incredibly coherent, which means that they last a really, really long time and don't have many errors naturally occurring. They can last, at most record I think from 2016 research is around 30 seconds, which is leaps and bounds about everyone else. And you can also make them have 99.9% error-free, which is pretty spectacular. They last long and they're pretty error-free. And the way we produce those qubits, those silicon qubits, is also pretty unique and special because it is similar to existing circuit fabrication methods. One group, specifically led by Michelle Simmons herself, actually builds these p-atoms, these phosphorus atoms, into a silicon crystal. It's a 25-step process that's pretty complicated, but basically they take some pure silicon, they seal it in a vacuum, they put a really thin coat of hydrogen, one atom thick, on top. They then scratch out, using variable voltage, basically electron scalpel, and they scrape some lines, and those lines become important later. Uh, then they drop in to the center, they puncture these little holes in the top of this big wafer and drop in a single phosphate atom. And that is then the qubit itself. And those little scratched lines, they become where you can read out the value of the qubit and infer voltage and things like that. So it becomes quite useful from an information perspective. So that's Michelle Simmons' method. The research team as well also has one where they fire phosphorus atoms into the silicon crystal uh, using basically a big beam. And the third approach is to use quantum dots. So basically turn a silicon transistor into a qubit. And all these different work pathways are being used by Australia. But by basing everything on silicon, we managed to encode qubits in a really dense way, in a way that mimics existing circuit design. And the most recent innovation is that they can actually make logic gates in it. Now, a logic gate is uh, basically like an AND or an OR switch. They're fundamental pieces of circuit design that have been around since the 60, 50s and 60s, in production anyway. But to do it on a quantum level is amazing because you could do something that would otherwise require thousands of qubits working together and not being an error state with maybe one or two qubits and some really fancy circuitry. So these 
logic gates that they're able to do relies on one simple property. And that is by using silicon and using a single silicon atom and encoding the information, this information for the qubit, not just in the spin up or spin down of the electron, but also using the nucleus. And by that pair means that you can now entangle and spread apart those two atoms a very long distance, 50 nanometers. But in circuit world, that's incredibly huge. Because now, instead of relying on really fancy and intricate and specialized and delicate methods, we can use traditional circuit design. We can add in things like tap-out paths, little etched lines for reading out voltage, control gates, and all other kinds of normal production facilities and science that we've done for normal transistors and chips. We can apply all of that, now quantum level, and make really resilient logic gates that are also quantum-based. So we apply all our previous learning in silicon circuit design to the quantum level. And effectively, that gives us about a two to three year advantage on the rest of the world's quantum computing design, meaning ours are more efficient, more stable, and more scalable. Yes, we don't have as many qubits as the rest of the world, IBM's 50 qubit machine, for example, or but we will probably by 2020 have a 20 qubit, very, very highly stable logical qubit, which can produce logic type circuits, meaning that we will be able to apply it to a lot of problems more quickly and more stably. And we could do all the kinds of problems that will otherwise be not really solvable by competing techniques like D-Wave. So Michelle Simmons' research group and consortium is really not only doing something that nobody else is doing, they're doing really, really hard science in a new and innovative way that is competing and arguably better than NASA, IBM, Google, you name it, the leaders in what we consider computing normally. And all this work is being done out of Australia. And if you don't think that's impressive, I don't know what else will impress you. So quantum computing has a lot of potential on some specific type of problems. Other problems will still be hard to solve, even with a quantum computer. And Professor Michelle Simmons's leadership on this topic, as well as her own specific inventions, has made her an expert and a leader in this field for the last 20 years. In the last 10 years of specific guidance of this research team, they've achieved really great things. And that's why she was named Australian of the Year, because she's putting Australia on the map in a quantum sense and competing with the likes of Google, NASA, IBM, all the biggest names in computing, right here from Australia. This has been the Young Scientist of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Found out how quantum computing works, what it is good at and what it isn't good at, and why it's just so damn difficult, and how Professor Michelle Simmons is helping lead the charge on breaking through. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.